Hi, I'm Matt Henry, and I'm the pastor at Missio Day Fellowship in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Very thankful that you found our sermons, and I hope that they are a way of encouragement to you in your Christian walk. However, it's important for you to understand that this sermon was given in my church's context and for the people that God has entrusted for me to shepherd. So if you're in the Kenosha area, I would encourage you to come on a Sunday and worship with the body of Christ here. And if you're not in this area, these sermons are a great tool for supplementing your walk, but they are by no means a substitute for the local church. So you need to submit yourself to a faithful Bible teaching church and shepherd in your area. Thank you. Well, as has been my habit in this small series on martyrdom, uh, I ask that you follow along as I read the final section of Acts 7. And then what, if you want, you can also begin to turn to Matthew 13 and get your finger there because that's where we will go next. In Acts 7, verse 51, Stephen is standing before these religious leaders having been accused of false things. He has just finished speaking a sermon that is a rough and hard to hear sermon where he speaks simply the truth about the nature of Israel and how they have been so disobedient over the centuries. And he says this, he says, you men who are stiff-necked and uncircumcised in your heart and ears are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just as your fathers did. Which one of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who had previously announced the coming of the righteous one, whose betrayers and murderers you have now become. You who received the law as ordained by angels and yet did not keep it. Now when they heard this, they were cut to the quick and they began began gnashing their teeth at him. But being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, Behold, I see the heavens opened up and the Son of Man standing at the right hand of God. But they cried out with a loud voice, covered their ears, and they rushed upon him with one impulse. And when they had driven him out of the city, they began stoning him. And the witnesses laid aside their robes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they went on stoning Stephen as he called upon the Lord and said, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And falling on his knees, he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. And having said this, he fell asleep. May the Lord bless his word. Well, we've been dealing with the issue of martyrdom and attached to that, the attendant persecution that comes with following Christ. And we have gone through various principles on martyrdom, and three to be specific, and we come to the last one today. The question that I pose to you is, why this series? Why why have I chosen to do this? Uh, I know that some have asked that very question and wondered why it is that I am beating this to death and why it is that I keep talking about it. And the answers are actually rather easy. First, it happens to be the section in the Acts that we're in that we have come to this story of Stephen and his martyrdom, and there's much we can learn from it. This death of Stephen sets into motion two millennia 
of murders because of the name of Jesus Christ. 2,000 years of men and women, young and old alike, being killed because they follow Jesus Christ. And so it's worth considering what is being taught here. Second, martyrdom is something that most of us have heard about, but none of us have really seen in any real way. And that causes you and I to treat it as a theoretical point rather than reality, and that's dangerous. Third, with the increasing paganization of our nation, the ability to worship and obey our Lord shall become more difficult without experiencing persecution. You will find this to be more and more true in your workplace, in your schools, in your relationships, that people simply will not tolerate anything that confronts their sin. So we've learned three principles so far. The first is simply this, don't be surprised when it happens. None of us should ever be surprised that we are persecuted or even killed. And yet the reality is that we will be surprised because as many times as I can preach on this subject, I still believe that most of you don't really think it will happen. But the scripture says, do not be surprised. Third, uh, second, we ought not to fret about it at the same time. For those of you that are beginning to maybe see the world that you live within and the, the reality of what's coming, then the temptation is to go the other way and begin to fret over the whole thing. And the scripture would say, no, you're not to fret over the possibility of persecution. Rather, just simply be busy about what you're supposed to be doing. Be busy being faithful as a Christian, that's all you need to do. You can't stop anything from happening that God has ordained, so just be found faithful. Third, we have to remember that the persecution is not merely from people. That's not the real problem. The persecution comes from Satan himself. That's where the roots are found, Satan, our adversary, what Acts 7 does, and passages like Acts 7, is it reminds us of this great battle that is constantly unfolding all around us. Paul said it this way in Acts chapter 6. He says that we do not wrestle with flesh and blood, but with the spiritual forces of evil. And so he asked that, he, that we pray for him. But this battle is also centered upon the spread and the proclamation of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And so at its core is a call, the gospel of Jesus Christ at its core is a call to come, to believe in Jesus, to follow Jesus, and to submit to Jesus as Lord of all. That's right at the core. And that is where the rub comes. That's where the problems come, is when you start to talk about the gospel in those types of absolute terms. And so many false ways come up uh, and develop as to how we can talk about the gospel that diminishes that call to discipleship, that call to lose all things to gain Christ. And so we instead hear the gospel posed and talked about, and we will even do it ourselves at times, and it's not the true gospel. We'll talk about the promise of healings, the promise of prosperity, the promise of friendship, of happiness, of social good, of therapeutic relief. In other words, we'll talk about everything 
and say, believe in Jesus and he can heal your marriage. Believe in Jesus and he can do this. Believe in Jesus and he'll give you that. But the thing that we tend to diminish is that we are wretched sinners, dead in our sins, under the wrath of God, and it's a just condemnation for our sin, and that we are to believe in Jesus, for through him we find forgiveness of our sin. That he is the one who brings that forgiveness, and he is the Lord over all things, Rather than, rather than believing that, what we tend to do, and many people call themselves a Christian, but when you ask them, what do you believe in Jesus for? It really is, if you strip it away and they're honest, is I believe in Jesus so that I might be comfortable in some way or another. Behind all of that is just the work of Satan to cause us to not understand the gospel as we ought. And so listen to the words of the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians. He writes this. He says in chapter 4, verses 3 through 5, And even if our gospel, our good news, is veiled or obscured or hidden, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they might not see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord, and ourselves as your bondservants for Jesus' sake. Now note the phrase, so that, in verse 4, he says that the gospel is veiled because the God of this world, Satan himself, is blinding the minds of unbelievers for what purpose? So that they would not see the gospel. They would not see it for what it is. And this is really what goes on, and this is where the persecution comes about, is that as we speak the gospel, we can talk about all sorts of other things, but as we talk about the gospel, that's where the tensions will start to rise because what you are calling them to do is not find happiness. They will find it in Christ, but that's not what the gospel's message is. The gospel's message is come and find forgiveness and then follow your Lord. (coughs) People do not think themselves as that bad. They do not believe themselves to be that worthy of condemnation. And they certainly are not willing to submit their total being to something else or someone else. And that's where the battle will lie. It's in the person of Jesus and whether you will follow him as Lord and Savior. Not halfway, not sort of, will you follow Jesus as Lord and Savior? And again, people become a little tense with that, but hear the words of Jesus himself when he says in Matthew 6, 24, that you cannot serve God and money. You just can't. You will hate one and love the other. How many times have we sought ways around that? And yet he says, you cannot do it. One must be supreme. Your pursuit of money or your pursuit of God, but they're mutually opposed to each other. Or Jesus, when he said in Luke 14, 26, if you come after Jesus, but you love your family, you love your mother or father, your children, your brothers or sisters, and you love them more than me, Jesus says, you cannot be his disciple or 
or disciple. You cannot be his follower. Take the most precious person in your life, and he says, if you exalt that above Jesus, then you can't be mine. That's an absolute statement. There's no wiggle room in that. He goes on in the very next verse, and he says, if you don't pick up your cross and follow me, and that cross is a cross of shame. That cross is a cross that looks weak because it belongs to Christ. And the world will look at it and mock you for it and, and roll their eyes for, at you and even persecute you. And he says, if you do not carry your cross and follow after me, you cannot be my disciple. These are the absolute realities, and this is where the persecution and ultimately martyrdom arises. You don't hear in the words of Stephen, words of, you know, your problem is if you would just see Jesus, then all of the things that you desire would come true. He says, no, you're just stiff-necked people. You're murderers. That's your problem. You're just like your father's. They keep pointing you to the coming righteous one, and you keep killing them. That's your real problem. You're murderers, you're liars, you're stiff-necked, your hearts are hard. And, and is it any wonder that he got mad and drug them out and killed them? And yet, it was a righteous work that he did. The command in the gospel is to come and deny yourself and follow him. Why? Because Jesus is the only sin-destroying Savior. So with that in mind, let's look at the last principle regarding martyrdom, and that the fourth principle is this, that persecution and martyrdom are a means, now hear this, are a means to reveal the genuineness of one's faith, Matthew 13. Persecution and martyrdom are a means to reveal a, the genuineness of one's faith. So we, we have many people in, in our type of situation in America where still it's basically very comfortable as a life and, and the persecution is minor, where they will claim they follow Jesus, they love Jesus, they want Jesus. But what happens is that God is ordained, God has actually designed the persecution and martyrdom to reveal one's faith. So in chapter 13 of of Matthew, verses 1 through 23, but we'll skip down because there's some passages uh, in there that we don't need to look at, we have a parable. Now remember, a parable is is designed, it's a story that has a deeper meaning, there's a message of uh, moral, if you wish, uh, built into the story. But it's not designed to illustrate. It's not uh, an illustrative story that you say, wow, that really clarifies things. In fact, what actually the purpose of the parable is, is to hide truth. What's happening in Matthew here is that by this time, the people are starting to question Jesus, reject Jesus, argue with Jesus. And so instead of sitting down and teaching them more, he begins to teach them in parables and hide the truth. And he will only show and reveal the truth to those whom he desires. And so he gives his parable in verse 3. He says, Behold, the sower went out to sow, and as he sowed, Some seeds fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate them up. 
and others fell upon the rocky places where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up because they had no depth of soil. And when the sun had risen, they were scorched, and because they had no root, they withered away. Others fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked them out. And others fell on the good soil and yielded the crop, some hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. And then he says, he who has ears, let him hear. So in here, then they ask about, why are you talking about parables in verses 10 and following? And he says, you have been granted the right to know these mysteries, but not everyone has. And so then he goes on and he starts to describe what's going on in verse 18. What, what does this parable mean? And he says, here then the parable of the sower. And he's now with his disciples, not with everybody. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom, another way we would say that is the gospel, and does not understand that the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is the one on whom the seed was sown beside the road. So now we know that the seed is actually the gospel and has been cast into the heart, the mind, the, the knowledge of a person, but he does not understand it. It's a hard heart, and so it just sits there, and he says that Satan takes it away. And the one on whom the seed was sown on the rocky places, this is a man who hears the word, immediately receives it with joy, but he has no firm root, notice this, in himself but is only temporary, and when what? Affliction or persecution arises because of the word. Notice, it's not affliction and persecution. It's affliction and persecution. Why? Because of the word. So it's around the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's the kind of persecution he's talking about. Notice what happens. Immediately, he falls away. And the one on whom seed was sown among the thorns, this is a man who hears the word, and the worry of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. And the one on whom seed was sown in the, on the good soil, this is a man who hears the word, understands it, who indeed bears fruit, brings forth some a hundredfold, some sixty, and some thirty. Here's the issue. Only one bears ultimately the fruit. One shows nothing. You, you share the gospel, you speak it to the person, and that's nothing. They just shrug their shoulder and move on. And you've all perhaps experienced that. But then you have the two, other two, where the, the word of God is speak, spoken, the person shows his interest, and in fact, maybe a lot of joy, and they all of a sudden start showing up to your Bible study or your church, and they're taking notes, and they got all kinds of questions, and you're like, man, this is great. But understand this, that initial growth is not a proof of the genuineness of your faith. It's never the proof of anyone's genuineness of their faith. Many will make the claim. Many will be baptized. Many will join a church, but that is not evidence. Notice that he gives two ways that a false believer ultimately is discovered. And only time will... Uh, uh, cause this to happen through the worries of this age and through persecution because of the gospel. 
And you of all, if you've been a Christian for any length of time, you have seen that unfold right before your very eyes. You may have a spouse that have done this. You, you yourself may have. Uh, you, you have watched your children do this. You have watched family members and friends do this. And, and it's a, a cause of great ache where they will stand. They will make a profession of faith. They will say, I, get, I want to be baptized. They'll be baptized. They'll come to church. They'll join the church. They'll do all of these things. But then the things of this age start to creep in and they become in love with them. And what you really discover is that they never were not in love with them. And they walk away. They walk away because they want the riches, they want the comfort, they want the prosperity, they want the reputation, they want that girl, they want that guy, they want this, they want that, and it goes on and on and on. Or they discover that their friends and family don't like them anymore. You're becoming a Jesus freak, you're becoming this and that, and the mocking start, and they just decide, I'm not, no. And they walk away from it again. I didn't sign up for this. That's where those false gospels come in. Because they come and say, well, it's prosperity. It's this and that. No. The gospel is that your sins can be fully forgiven and you can have life eternal. But you understand the cost. You've got to understand the cost of following Jesus. Both of these groups fade away and they die. Only those who have been born anew by the Holy Spirit will ever endure and grow and bear the fruit of one who actually loves God. Jesus said it this way in uh, Matthew chapter 7. He says, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Jesus is actually the most brutal preacher of all. He never hides the cost of following. He says, look, come through the narrow way, the hard way. It's the one that leads to life. But by, just so you know, very few find it. If you're around a lot of people and they're all heading down the same highway, and they all think they're going to heaven, you're probably on the wrong highway. That's what he's saying. He's saying it's a narrow one, it's a hard one, it's a lonely path. It's not the one that everybody is going to. And here's the thing about the gospel and following Jesus. It never widens. Don't lie to people when you share the gospel. It won't get wider. In fact, it will get more narrow. And it gets narrow going back to the imagery of the parable because the worries of the world will crowd in around you and it will make it harder. And you have to literally physically avoid these temptations to go a different way as you go around the the weeds and the thorns and the thistles of riches and reputation and comfort and health and safety. And you, you'll find it's harder and harder, and they'll be grabbing at you. And you have to make the willful choice. No, we're staying here. And then it will get more narrow as it, it comes into the persecution, and you start to realize, this could cost my marriage. Yes, it might. Yes, it might cost you your marriage. Jesus wouldn't want that. And you know what? You'll find a thousand pastors out there will tell you that. 
I remember a woman in our church back in like my first or second year here, and she had marital problems, and she came to me and asked for marriage counseling. I met with her and her husband, heard their gospel, asked them, what do you believe? Tell me your testimony about how you came to faith. And they gave it. It was both of them were very vague. So we began, and, but everyone at that point, I was, that was fairly normal. And, and so it's like, okay, well, we'll go from there. And I started helping them with their marriage and asking them, what did they know the Bible said about how a marriage ought to be? And she was just like, fix my husband, fix my husband. He, he's the problem. And, uh, as, as we went along, it was interesting that as I would ask a question from the Bible, and we'd have the Bible open, and I'd say, well, so what's it saying? The man seemed to understand the, the passage, and she almost always got it wrong. And I'm like, you're the one that keeps saying that you're the saved one, and he's not. And yet, he's the one that seems to understand the word, and you never seem to get it. And so I began to wonder in my mind about her. She was a difficult person to deal with. They, they were a mess as a couple. And she, as I began to talk about the commands and expectations within a marriage of a Christian couple, she didn't like it, and she started to miss church and whatnot. And one day I got a call from home, and it was her. And she's like, Pastor, I, 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 this is Denise. I'm like, hi. And she's like, I just wanted to let you know that I'm leaving your church. I'm like, Okay. And uh, thank you for letting me know. And she's like, well, I want to tell you why. She's like, I, I've been meeting with another pastor because I just don't agree with your counsel on marriage. I'm like, okay. And, and I told him my problem. And he, t- he showed me that Jesus said that he came to give us joy abundantly. And he pointed out that in your marriage, there is no way you can have joy because of the situation with your husband. And therefore, Jesus would not want you to remain in that marriage. And she's like, so I am going to divorce my husband, and and I just want to let you know that I knew the Bible would let me. And I finally found a faithful pastor that will teach me that. Well, I told her, I said, well, you can call him anything you want, but one, he's not a pastor, two, he's not faithful, and three, you're, you're believing a lie. But I said, I can't make you believe any of that. And she thanked me and hung up and... The rest is history. That's the cost of following Jesus. It's, are you going to stay within this relationship because you're called to be faithful to your covenant vows? Are you going to follow Jesus? Are you going to follow Jesus? Or when it costs so much to follow Jesus, do you say, I'm done, and I fall away, and I walk away? I'm speaking to you all. Listen to me. If you claim Christ, understand you're on a narrow path. Don't be shocked about it. It only gets more narrow. The worries of life crowd in around it. The presence of persecution, even the loss of life, will press down, making it all the more narrow. And not one of you in this room, certainly not me, None of us have the power or the ability to endure on their own. It only comes through being made alive by the Spirit of God that you persevere. And so the path that we walk in is littered with the souls of those who have claimed Christ and then abandoned him. 
go with me to the near the back of the Bible to First Peter. I'm sorry, you need to know the actual book, don't you? First Peter. We'll spend the bulk of our time here. The book of First Peter, chapter one. The book of First Peter is actually a very helpful one. I preached through it many many years ago here. Uh, but it's so helpful, especially as the events that we're living in now begin to surround us and affect us. Now, last message, two weeks ago, I spoke on John 17, where Jesus was describing us of being not of the world, but that we're still in the world, that we don't belong to this age, but we're still here. And therefore, he was praying on behalf of us. The world, this age, its values, its passions, cannot be what defines a Christian, we saw. We're forbidden to be like this age. But the pressure is to constantly conform to this age. So Romans 12 says, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And we have to constantly reset our thinking. That's one of the reasons you gather on a Sunday is to reset your thinking because all week long you've been hearing everything and anything but truth. And then you can come back and reset yourself and say, no, 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 I was doing, doing it the right way. And you start to rework things. Failure to, com- uh, re- to bring your mind into conformity to the word of God always will result in becoming conformed to this age. But though we're not to be conformed or of this age, in other words, we are to belong, we still live in the, this age, and the question is, how do we live? Well, notice verses one and two. Peter says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God and Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, that you may obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with his blood. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. Now, there's a lot of words in those two verses, but this, those two verses actually tell you the theme of the book. Now, once you cl- clear away all of the extra words that can clutter up your mind so that you end up missing the point, once you strip all of that away and you go, if some of you were taught, these are usually older people, uh, how to diagram in uh, your English. And if you were to diagram this out, you would be able to quickly find the core of what this passage is about. So you strip away all of the extraneous words. They're all divine words. They're all inspired. They're all important. But they are all added to the core of what the verse is saying. Here's what the verse is saying, the the two verses are saying. It's Peter to the chosen or elect who live as strangers to the purpose of obeying Jesus Christ. It's Peter, I'm writing to the aliens or strangers who are to obey Jesus Christ. They're the elect who are the strangers to obey Jesus Christ. That's it. Everything else enlarges on that core point. To be chosen speaks of that sovereign work of God to call out those whom he desires to save, not based on their value, but upon his own Grace, aliens speaks of living in a foreign land that's not yours. And that's simply the theme of the letter. 
that you and I, if you are a Christian, have been chosen by God unto salvation, and now we don't belong in this age. And so we need to learn to look at this world that we live in as a foreign land. And once we start to say, this is not my home, things become much more clear as to what we ought to do. All the rest of the book is doing is telling you how to do it. That's why it's such a helpful book. How do you live in this world? And so Peter starts this letter out then in verses 3 on down with this description of the Christian's inheritance. And so he talks about in verse um, 4 that God has caused us, verse 3 says, he's caused us to be born again, for the, and, the, and now we have this living hope to, toward what end? To obtain, in verse 4, an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled, will not fade away, reserved in heaven for you. So he talks about our inheritance as a Christian, that God has kept it and he's promises and it's safe for all eternity. It will never fade away. It will never get old. It will never be defiled in any way. It's ours. And then he goes in verse 5 and talks about you and my, our salvation and the, how we ourselves, not just the inheritance, but we ourselves, our soul, is kept safe by the power of God. So those are the two things that he starts out with. He talks about this great thing that we have been given, the inheritance and our salvation. But notice then he immediately transitions into suffering. So in verse 6, in this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials. So he goes right away into suffering. Why? Because that's going to be a part of your life. It's just the normal part of living as a Christian. In fact, to the degree you live a life that's not in conformity to this age, but in conformity to the next, suffering will be yours. So he points out in this, in verse 6, it's pointing backwards to the previous verse. In this we rejoice, not, not how great our life is right now. What we rejoice in is that in spite of what our life is, whether it's good or bad, pleasant or unpleasant, we don't rejoice there. We have to rejoice in the inheritance and our salvation. In fact, if you are in the midst of trials right now and you are a Christian and you have not learned yet to rejoice, it means that you have yet to grasp the glory and the reality of verses 3 through 5. And I have no counsel for you. I have no way to help you. If you are right now in the middle of trial and you're filled with woe and angst and, oh, this is horrible and unfair and this and that, all I can tell you is that you don't understand the promises of the gospel, the promises of the inheritance, and the fact that you are kept safe. You are too wrapped up in this world, and, and, and I'll give you a pastoral secret. I don't even feel sorry for you. I really don't. I can't. How can I feel sorry for you if you are refusing to rejoice in that which you're commanded to rejoice in because you're angry, because you're suffering and feeling the loss of the very things you're supposed to die to? You're clinging to the things that will kill you and you're refusing to cling to the things that bring you life. And then you say, feel sorry for me. I will not. None. Nor should you. 
You don't comfort the person because they love that which they ought to hate. It's contrary to the gospel message. He says, rejoice in these things. Learn to do that. I tell you that when you see the promise of the inheritance to come and how safe it is and how safe your soul is, and it's more than just words on on paper, you will have a joy and a revival in your own soul that you cannot contain. When these are no longer just theological words or intellectual thoughts, but they are reality, they will transform you like you've never seen before. Your eyes will blaze with joy, or as Peter says, you will greatly rejoice. He adds, even though now, for a little while, if necessary, knows how he piles these words on, you have been distressed by various trials. Let's break that down a little bit. The various trials. Well, the word trial means to be tempted or, or tested. But it's that word various that is helpful. It's, it means multicolored, literally multicolored. In other words, that God has a way of taking the trials in your life and tweaking them so that they're never quite the same each time. Have you ever discovered that? And if you haven't, start paying attention to them. He'll just keep tweaking them so they're always a little different and ever shifting. God is the master of your trials. He says that you're distressed in these various multicolored trials. It's a military term uh, to, to speak of harassing an enemy. It's not a full frontal assault. It's that, that guerrilla warfare, you know, where you're picking away and you're setting a landmine over there and tossing a grenade and then running or shooting a few rounds and then disappearing back into the forest. It's designed to harass and destroy the morale and, and break you down and make you hate what you're doing. That's what it is. He, he, so he's saying that we're now distressed by these trials. They're disruptive. A trial is supposed to give you grief. That's why I, I feel bad when I see people in the midst of trials, but I also am like, it is a trial. I mean, you're supposed to feel bad. I'm a horrible pastor. Yes, I know that. But that's how I think. It's like, pastor, you don't know. It's, it's just, I'm like, called a trial, you're supposed to be distressed. Are you distressed? Yes, that's the problem. No, 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 that's not the problem. That's what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be distressing. This distress means that it's being distressed on an emotional level the physical level, the emotional realms, these are the areas where the stress and the distressing takes place. The thing that doesn't happen, though, is that a trial can never affect your affections. It can get your emotions, but it can't get your affections. Your affections are those things that you have settled in your heart that you believe. So here's the weird thing. He says, in this, what we have in heaven, our inheritance, and our soul is safe in Christ. He says, in this we greatly what? While we're distressed. 
So harassed, we're, we're burdened, we're, we're tear-stained, and yet we greatly rejoice. That is the weirdness of the Christian faith. That is how a man like Stephen can have rocks big enough to crush his skull raining down upon him, and he says, forgive them. How, how, do, how does a man do that? He does that because his heart is so altered that the things that he values, his, those things that are his affections, remain solid. So on one hand, you greatly rejoice, and on the other side, you're distressed. The reason you're able to do this is that the Christian experience moves you from the here and now to what is to come. But if your whole world is centered in this age, you don't get that. You don't understand that because it's all about here. This is what happens in these trials. The emotions are attacked. He says also that if necessary, these trials will come. It tells me that trials come only if necessary. That little word, day, in the Greek, D-E-I in English, day, necessary, you have to do it. It's needed. It tells me then that God is sovereignly ordaining these trials. It's not that they just accidentally happened in your life, but rather they were ordained. Your cancer, your sickness, your illness, the the persecution, whatever it might be that you're experiencing, all of that God says is necessary, therefore I give it to you. It's, It's part of the sovereign work of God. Second, it also tells me that it's going to come and go because sometimes it's not necessary. And we like those times. Even though for a little while tells us that it's short in duration. Now, how long might this trial happen? Well, it might happen your whole life. You say, well, that's not very short duration. It is in light of eternity. Beloved, the thief on the cross is not complaining that his legs are broken now. Stephen is not in heaven whining because the rocks were too big, and Job is not complaining and remembering the pain of his boils. He's at rest, and he's at peace. But all of this, Peter says, is so that your faith is shown to be genuine. Notice he says, you've been distressed by various trials so that, and the Greek which is what the New Testament was written in, it's it's a complex sentence. So depending on translation, the words might not exactly follow, but the, the idea should be there. In the New American Standard, it's so that the proof of your faith be more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So he establishes that when Christ returns at his revelation, his return, this faith that's tested will result in praise and glory. That's the idea of what he's doing. So in verse 7, it's this very future aspect. And so he takes this idea of refining the process of gold 
And, and, and in that, he explains why your suffering and persecution is good. So all of you in this room, if you were super honest, but you wouldn't be to me because, you know, you, you got to be humble too, right? But if you were really honest to me and I was to talk to you, most of you would say that you have, if I was to say, kind of show me a ball in your mind of how much faith you have. And you'd say, oh, I don't know this, but, well, that's the pastor. I want to be humble this much, that much. Yeah. Maybe that much faster. You know, a few of you who really think highly of yourselves, oh, I don't know, about like that. And that's what, but we all have it. If if you think about, do you have faith? I, I do. About how much? Give me a size. Well, what God does in trials is then he takes your ball and sticks it in the crucible and lights it on fire. He says, we'll see. We'll see. That's where you're like, oh, crud. <laughs> I'm busted. And now, just like gold, with all of the impurities, all that's coming out, and all that's only going to remain is that which is genuine gold. This is what the trial does to you. That's why it's so good, even though it's not fun. He takes your faith, and he burns it with trials and suffering and persecution and hatred and all of that stuff that this world will hurl at you. And he, he says it's necessary. He says, Scott, you need to know where you're at. We need to purify it so it's necessary. And he puts it in there, and you're like, oh, and it hurts. And, and in fact, it can even be a little shaming. You know, you're like, man, I thought I was doing better than that. But what remains is what? You tell me. What? After it's all done, what remains? The real faith, or no faith, right? There's a point where you're in the crucible and you say, I'm done. I didn't sign up for that. And that's what the trials do. But for the Christian, after it burns it away, and it only happens when you're in the midst of the persecution and the trial. That's why they're good. When it's all done... What remains is genuine, not what you made it out to be, not what you lied to yourself and said, oh, I'm this much. It's what is there. It might still be the same amount, but most of the time it's a lot less. But it's genuine. And you say, yeah, but pastor, you don't know, understand. That's so little. How much faith do you need to move a mountain, according to Jesus? The grain of a mustard seed. That's pretty good. It doesn't matter how much genuine faith you have. It says genuine. It's the faith rests in Christ and nothing else but Christ. And only trials and persecution does that. And he says, that's why you can rejoice. Because at the revelation of Jesus Christ, you're sitting there and you've got tears on your face and you've got wounds on your body and maybe scars and all of the other things that just come with following Christ. And Christ comes and he shows you your faith and he praises you and brings you glory. And it's okay. So how do you learn to endure suffering and trials and persecution? Two ways. You understand the purpose. It's burning away the fake faith. And second, it's going to result in praise and honor. So it's worth it. 
So to the young believer or the untaught believer, that seems so strange that the way the Lord lovingly treats his children is by putting them in fiery trials. It's just hard to understand. But it's always been his way. And that's what you older Christians, not just old in age, but older in maturity, that's what you do with the younger ones. You come alongside them and talk to them about these things and encourage them in the midst of these things. Point to them, not, it'll get better. Here, take this pill. Here, rub this thing on you. No, point them to the inheritance that's eternal and the salvation that's secure, the things that matter. Now, all of this, then, is held together by the glue of the love for Christ. Notice in verse 8, and though you have not seen him, Christ, you love him, And though you do not see him now, but believe in him, you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory, obtaining as the outcome of your faith the salvation of your souls. You see, when you have the faith that you yourselves generate, you find it will ultimately fail because it's like the the ground that's rocky ground. It has no root. It's not rooted in Christ is rooted in your own heart. And when your own heart fails, it fails. Persecution just burns it away. But true faith in God, that, that's a gift to us that does not fail. It's a genuine gift. Your, your faith actually becomes strengthened in those desperate times. If I had the time and I had the permission, I could spend hours, literally hours, picking some of you people out by name and talking to you about how I have watched God bless you in the midst of your suffering. I've watched you now for some of you a quarter of a century, and I've watched it, and I've watched you, I've watched, I've listened to you, I've prayed for you, I've tried to teach you and encourage you, but I could literally fill up hours right now if I wanted to with no problem just simply calling out names and talking to you about how I have witnessed you grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ in the midst of your suffering. It is God's ordained method, and it is not surprising. And all of it is because God works. To the average ear, this idea seems stupid. It makes no sense. You undergo trials and you don't lose heart. Instead, you seem to gain hope. Why? Because all that stuff that you used to cling to starts to get burned away, and you start clinging to the only thing that is secure, and that's Christ himself. One more passage, and then we'll draw all this to a close. Romans 8. One of the most ignored verses in this wonderful chapter. Romans 8, verse 17. So he, Romans 8 is just a great, wonderful ch- chapter. It was fun to preach through it when I preached through Romans. He says in verse 14, All who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. We don't have a spirit of slavery in verse 15. We call out to 
God as adopted children, and we say, Abba, Father. Verse 16, the Spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. And then we come to verse 17, and if children, then heirs also. See, Paul's talking here like Peter is about this inheritance that's ours. If we're children, then we're heirs also, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Now, that's where we all put the period, right? We're, we're heirs of God, and we're fellow heirs with Christ, and joint heirs with Jesus, and we got songs about being joint heirs with Jesus. Kim and I used to go to a Sunday school class at Grace Community Church called Joint Heirs, and, and I mean, that's we all want to talk about that, and we put the period, but Jesus and the Spirit of God puts a comma. What, what's he say? If indeed we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. There's a, there's a process. He says, you're joint heirs with Jesus. Yes, you are. You, you are fellow heirs. You're children of God. You're adopted in the family of God. What's the mark of that? You suffer with him. And only through the suffering with him will you be glorified with him, which means ultimate eternal life. We all want to be called children of God. But that title and that term belongs to those who suffer with him. No Christian is in a healthy state of mind who is not prepared for trouble and persecution. Those are the words of a man named J.C. Ryle. He says, no Christian is in a healthy state of mind who is not prepared for trouble and persecution. He that expects to cross the troubled waters of this world and to reach heaven with wind and tide always in his favor knows nothing yet as he ought to know. We never can tell what is before us in life, but one thing we may be very sure we must carry the cross if we would wear the crown. Let us grasp this principle firmly and never forget it. The call to discipleship is absolute. If you're here and you're saying, I'm a Christian, but I'm not doing that, then stop calling yourself a Christian. Just just stop pretending. There's no purpose behind it. All you do is heap up the wrath of God all the more as one who reviles his name while claiming his name. The call to discipleship is absolute. It's not halfway. It's not part way. You don't bargain. And persecution is part of that. Only the power of saving grace will enable you to endure. In the death of a believer, what happens is Satan, in a sense, is trampled underfoot every time. Every time a Christian dies, the, the person of, or, or the being of Satan is trampled because he's brought into life eternal. Satan hates the death of a believer because it's a testimony of God's faithfulness that a believer is brought safely through death into life. And in the willingness to raise a fist in rejection to the lures of this age and the God of this age, the martyr, and the one who is a patient sufferer reveals the true glory of the gospel. 
They show not in word only, but in deed, in blood, in tears, that their hope is in the Lord Jesus Christ. Peter Call talks of this in his first letter where he says that as we suffer for our faith, it creates opportunities to speak of the hope that lies within us, and we should be always ready to speak of that hope. But the world is a prison filled and entraps us with its many vices and temptings. Over time, we will lose sight of the walls that are erected by sin and death, and we'll forget that there's this vast new world to come. We trudge in circles around those walls just existing. And like fools, we amass small troves of so-called treasures within the prison, but will never bring us freedom. And we'll fight, and we'll hate, we'll murder, we'll lie just to keep our little life alive. But what the gospel does is it opens us. It opens our eyes to the glory of the land beyond. The land where sin and death are no more, where the true God reigns and has cast away every enemy. The Holy Spirit takes a heart that was dead in sin and gives it life and faith in Jesus Christ. And in that moment, our eyes are opened, not just to our terrible position as rebels and sinners, but to the sheer grace of God in giving us his son to die in our place. Our eyes are open to the fact that we are redeemed. We're bought into a freedom with the death of Jesus. Our eyes are now open through Jesus Christ. And we shall enter and enjoy the new heavens and earth for all eternity. And when you get that firmly fixed in your heart, you will face the sufferings, the persecution, and possibly even the martyrdom because Jesus is worth it. In fact, you can even bid others that you love to come and follow and join you in suffering with Christ because it's worth it. Let me end it this way with Polycarp. He was a well-known bishop as well as a disciple of the Apostle John. Pretty cool, huh? Who were you discipled by? The Apostle John. Oh, never mind. I was pretty, thinking I was pretty blessed, but that's cool. The Apostle whom Jesus loved discipled this man. And he obviously discipled him well, because he died well. John died at the hand, or uh, Polycarp died at the hands of the Roman government. He was bound and burned at a stake. Even that was not enough. And so as he was there burning at the stake, they repeatedly stabbed him to create even more torment. What was his crime? Well, his crime was simply this. Once a year, you had to go into the temple and burn a small pinch of incense to Caesar. That's all you had to do. You had to go in, take a pinch of incense to a temple, and burn it and say, Caesar is Lord. That's all. Ain't no big thing. Except who's Lord? Jesus is Lord. And the Christian could not do it. Would you? It's no big deal. Jesus knows that you know he's the Lord. You got, you got a family you got to take care of, right? I mean, he understands. I got I to gotta be around for my wife and kids. I, I, I can't be just, it's just a pinch of incense. 
Well, he refused. He was 86 years old. And he, these are his final words. They were recorded. Eighty and six years I have served him, and he has done me no wrong. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Threaten me with a fire that burns for a season, and after a little while is quenched, but you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is prepared for the wicked. And what stands out with this death and countless other ones over the centuries is how they were willing to do so. They did not seek it, but they were also convinced that the Bible was true, and the Bible declares that God is in control, and therefore they, they were convinced that the suffering was not an accident. Here's what was written by the person who chronicled Polycarp's martyrdom. It is to the people over whom Polycarp had served as a bishop. So I, I don't want to make myself to be Polycarp, but imagine that I was the one that was put on the stake and burned and repeatedly stabbed until I died. And somebody writes to you, the church, that I was pastor over, and these were the words that they tell you. We wish you, brethren, all happiness. While you walk according to the doctrine of the gospel of Jesus Christ, with whom be glory to God the Father and the Holy Spirit, for the salvation of his holy elect, after whose example the blessed Polycarp suffered, following in whose steps we may too be found in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. Not a word to flee, not a word to hide, not a word of despair, and not a word of bitterness. A desire that they be happy but not the kind of happiness that this world will give you, but happy in the knowledge that they knew God and that God knew them and that he had saved them and that if it was God's will, that they would go through the same, foot, same path into eternity and that that should make them happy. Beloved, is that your hope? Is that your hope? Let's pray. Father, we have so many things that crowd in our life. This world is fully ensconced in every way into our existence. And I pray that these sermons would begin to sink deeply into the souls of all here. We rejoice in everything but what we ought to rejoice in. We give thanks for all the things that we ought perhaps not to give thanks in, and we forget you. Forgive us for that. Forgive us for the way that we we become so easily distracted. We're we're but children, and I thank you that you say that you know that that we are but dust. Strengthen us in the spirit that we might see more fully the joy of our salvation in Christ. Cause us to walk with humility, but let us follow you in every way. Bless these people. Bless them in their time here. I thank you. In your son's holy name, amen.